If you think it's really claustrophobic to live and work in outer space, wait till you hear what it's like aboard the International Space Station. The secret that we keep from everybody on the Earth is that the space station is enormous. Astronaut Katie Coleman joins us in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves to share what it's like to spend nearly six months conducting scientific experiments with an international crew. But being weightless does take some getting used to. When new people first get up there, they're sort of clumsy and they come flying through the lab and they knock everything off the walls that's Velcroed and land at your feet looking like new puppies that are just so excited. They're like, oh, look at this. Isn't this cool? We'll hear about the projects Katie worked on and how she and her fellow crew members learned to eat, sleep, and yes, even that, in zero gravity. We're here each week to illuminate our world, and this time it's with a -a one-of-a-kind view from space on Travel with Rick Steves. You've met guides to some pretty unusual places well off the beaten path here on Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we get the inside scoop on what it's like aboard the International Space Station with astronaut Katie Coleman. From starting her travels as a high school exchange student in Norway, Katie eventually became an Air Force lieutenant and a mission specialist on the space shuttle Columbia. Katie has also lived weightless for nearly half a year while conducting experiments on the International Space Station. She joins us today from the studios of Johnson Space Center in Houston to share what it's like to live and work in outer space. Katie, thanks for joining us. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I was laughing because my uh, my mom used to tease me that at last I had a job in a place that I'd been actually a lot of my life already. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm just really curious about what it must be like. You know, this is a travel show. If you could be like my tour guide, let's pretend it's 100 years from now and people are actually going uh, and having the experience that you have as part of your work. Uh, I'm on my first uh, space flight. Uh, get me oriented. Uh, what's it like living up there? What am I going to pack? What do I see out the window? Well, I would say first you have to decide how you want to go. You know, in a way, do you want to take the bus or the train or where you going to walk? We actually have different ways to go to space. We've been going for a long time in the space shuttle, but now that we've retired that, we are doing two things. One is going up and down with the Russians. So I actually launched from Kazakhstan on a Soyuz rocket with uh, one Russian and one Italian. And then we are also building a new capsule, which will go not only to the space station, but also back to the moon and to Mars and in places that are outside low Earth orbit. And I'd like to think that someday people will just be able to pick which way they'd like to go because we'll have even more. So that part of it is pretty exciting. So it's like, you know, you can get a year rail pass that covers Scandinavia or one that doesn't. You've got the lower Earth orbit, or you could opt for the moon. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) This is interesting how you're going to go. It's so fun to think of this in terms of travel. Before we had the shuttle, that's one vehicle that goes up, comes down, and use it again. Now we don't have that. We go up and down with the Russians. Do they have the pre-shuttle sort of notion of sending a a craft up there, or do they have a shuttle also? The Soyuz is a pretty different beast than the shuttle in that it's very small. This is like the the VW bug compared to the large tour bus. (laughs) <laughs> the smart car. It is a smart car. It is, it's very tiny. I mean, it is, it is three people sitting shoulder to shoulder wow. together, a very tiny thing. I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is it only actually takes eight and a half minutes to get into space Amazing. as we define it. I can see you going up in this little Russian smart car, but how do you come down from the space station? Well, we come down in the same little smart car. We have spacecraft that bring us up there and then come back. But 
don't get reused, and that's the ones that we're using right now. But we have plans to be making ones that can oh, be reused so as our NASA, yeah, exactly. How, our NASA space shuttle was reusable. How can they bring you down and not be able to be reused again? Does it crash into the sea? No, but it crashes on Earth, and it's supposed to. It's it's kind of a wild thing. So it comes down with it with a parachute, and it's bam, it got you down safely. But they're not going to uh, fix the bumpers. It's actually more a question of you know. Sp- we're sort of joking around about space travel here, but it's it's really a, a pretty serious thing. And when mm-hmm. you're going to put people inside, I mean, no matter what, it's going to be expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you put people inside. And you really want to know with a certain certainty that everything is as right, right as you could okay. make it, even though there's some risk involved. And mm-hmm. basically, once it's had that impact, we're, we're not going to use that physical yeah. capsule again. Yeah. Yeah. But we do actually reuse a lot of the parts on the inside, all the the radios and the computers and the screens okay. and that kind of hardware. I see. That makes sense to me then. You go into Kazakhstan. If I went to Kazakhstan, I'd be worried about will the handle fall off of the toilet when I flush it. Do you do you get <laughs> do you get a sense that do you, do you feel competence like in Houston? Absolutely. At the Baikonur Cosmodrome, I mean this is a place that they have been launching people into low Earth orbit for more than 50 years. And it's interesting because it's in the middle of the desert, you know, so in the morning I would go out running and I would see camels. (laughs) You know, that's one image that I I have in in markets where you can buy all sorts of neat Mm -hmm. exotic things and they specialize (laughs) in cool knives. And then in the afternoon I could go and do a fit check in the rocket that I'm going to take to space three days later. I love it. And Russia, of course, has had some problems lately, but they've maintained a a priority for funding and and researching and and making a first-class space program. Well, the International Space Station is this absolutely amazing endeavor because this is 16 different countries all joined Hmm. together, flying one vehicle together. And you can look at kind of the crew, which is six of us, usually three Russians and three what we call the United States operating segment, which is actually made up of Canada and Japan and about 15 countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. So there's six of us all together. That's one international venture is the folks that you are camping, so to speak, with. Mm -hmm. But then on the ground, there are hundreds of people that are working together every single day you know, deciding hard questions together mm-hmm. and having to establish relationships together. And I think that's really a neat, neat part of the, the whole endeavor. And Katie, is, is that an international sort of group there on the ground? Is there, is there a sort of an international esprit de corps or is that primarily Russian? It's a totally international endeavor in that the space station itself is divided kind of, you know, in half, so to speak. We don't need a passport to go from one side to the other. But in general, I'd say our work is a little bit divided. The Russians mm-hmm. tend to do work on Russian experiments. But then the U.S. and the Europeans, the Canadians, the Japanese, we all are working together on a joint set of experiments. And so I, as an American, would be working on any number of different kinds of experiments from different countries And that means that on the ground, there are folks that are talking together and making sure that when I get a set of directions about how to put something together or operate it, that it makes sense to me. Do you get a sense that it's a force for peace just to have an excuse to work together on something bigger than, you know, petty border disputes? It gives me a lot of faith in people themselves. Mm -hmm. I know that after being up there and looking down at the earth, it's not that I'm not patriotic, but I, I felt a little sort of you know, just to, to think that I should put an American flag on my shoulder or 
or think of myself as from one place, it just felt so limited when we're mm-hmm. really all from the same place. Well, sooner or later, we've got to figure that out, you know. <laughs> I mean, we can be proud of our country, but we're on this planet together, and that's maybe that's one of the great byproducts of the space program up until now is just the recognition that we are a community on this planet. Individual people still build those bridges, mm-hmm. help, you know, the sort of the big bosses to trust each other. It's down mm-hmm. at sort of mm-hmm. my level when two people just look at each other and say, let's get this to work, even right. though everybody doesn't understand each other yet. And I think that that happens when you do regular travel as well. You know, in some other country, who you are is going to represent many, many Americans to the people there. That's sort of a fundamental to thoughtful travel as far as we're concerned. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Katie Coleman, and Katie's an astronaut, and she's coming to us from Houston. We're talking again about fantasizing about traveling and so on, and if you were my my coach for a trip, and you have to do this every time you go up, what are packing tips? How, how do you pack? Just I'm talking personal stuff for a space trip. How would that be different than just going on a on a cruise? The biggest difference is that so much of it happens so long before you go. The good news is you don't bring that much with you. So there's not that many (laughs) decisions to make. I mean, for example, you know, it's about six pairs of pants and 12 shirts for six Mm. months. Okay. For for the sort of nice shirts. Then we have a lot of gym clothes and things that we wear for working out. So all that stuff gets decided, even I would say about a year ahead of time. And then it's kind of a nice surprise when you get up on orbit and there it is. Because it's going to come up probably not in your uh, Soyuz, oh, your ship ahead. that you go up in. I get it. It's sent ahead. It is. It is. And then you've got some living space once you get up there. That's true. And even actually on the way up, that little you know smart car or VW bug-sized vehicle is actually attached to another one about the same size. They're mm-hmm. like in a little train there. And that actually gives you a lot of living room for that time, everything from a few hours to a couple days that you Mm -hmm. might be in orbit around the Earth Mm -hmm. by yourselves Mm -hmm. before you dock with the space station, which for me was a very special time to be in such a small spaceship, just three of us orbiting Mm. the Earth. Wow. You're a musician and a beautiful flute player, and I saw the uh, YouTube video of you and Ian Anderson (laughs) from Jethro Tull playing. I was so inspired by that. You have that opportunity to share your passions. you got a little wiggle room up there to be who you are, and not just some sort of perfect, groomed, well-trained astronaut, but Katie the flute player. <laughs> yeah, we do have to throw the perfect grooming out of there if you saw the space hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought your hair is kind of nice going there like some sort of fancy statue with the no, no gravity. My, my mom was a little horrified, but uh, it's actually kind of neat where down here on the ground I'm always sort of tucking it behind my ears, but up there... It has a life of its own, and when you turn your head, that whole head of hair goes with you. So it's not actually in your way, although it can really be in other people's way (laughs) if you have as much hair as I do. (laughs) Now, you were honoring Yuri Gagarin with this flute uh, duet with Ian Anderson, and Yuri Gagarin is the famous Russian cosmonaut. And it occurred to me there really is an international esprit de corps. I mean, you you talked of him with great respect, like he was uh, a hero. Anybody that leaves the planet has had a very special opportunity. And the first person to leave the planet, I think, must have been a pretty special guy. We we happened to be up there on my expedition on the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. And that's really just celebrating, I, I think, all the people who've already been and also the people that are going to go. Mm-hmm. Because this is something we can do now. It's, a, it's something that humans can do. And it's, uh, it's here to stay. And this is for humanity, 
This is not for America or Russia or Britain. It's for humanity. Don't you feel that way? I absolutely feel that way. And, you know, I think it makes a big difference in in kind of a subtle way in that there's something fascinating and, and hopeful about people leaving the planet and going someplace else. And we don't even know exactly where they're going to go in the future. I mean, there's other planets out there. There's other places to go. And we're actively planning to go back to the moon to land on an asteroid and understand, you know, what living in outer space would be like to go back to Mars. Those are plans that are moving along, although we're in the kind of frustrating stage, I would say, of trying to make sure we've got all the pieces in place Mm -hmm. to make sure that when we get to wherever we're going, everybody's still doing okay. And those pieces are hard. We have a link to Katie's YouTube video where she plays a flute in zero gravity from the space station and gives flyaway hair a whole new meaning. You'll find it in this week's radio program details at ricksteves.com. There's more just ahead from Katie Coleman on everyday life aboard the space station, where a room with an ocean view takes on a whole new meaning. We'll also check the phones later in the hour to hear what some of our listeners have gleaned from their own far-flung adventures back here on planet Earth. We're at 877-333-RICK. Or by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. For a woman who spent months living in outer space, Katie Coleman is one of the most down-to-earth astronauts you'll ever meet. She's a mother, a musician, and a scientist. And she splits her time between Massachusetts and Texas, when she's not on assignment in space, or working on NASA's Aquarius Underwater Laboratory. And she's our special guest right now. I am taxpayer Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I spend a lot of my tax money sending Katie Coleman up into outer space. Is it worth it? I'm a scientist. That's the way I was trained. There's a lot of different things that we do up in space that we just plain old can't do down here. And it's because of that lack of gravity or maybe that lack of atmosphere. One of my favorite applications, because it pertains directly to me, and a lot of people I know, is osteoporosis. Mm. When we go up there, we lose bone because we're not walking around on our feet and sending those messages to our brain about needing bone and building bone. We lose bone at about 10 times the rate of a woman who has osteoporosis who's 70 years old. So what she loses in a whole year, I lose in a month if I'm not doing something to stop it. And so I'm part of a a really interesting osteoporosis experiment to understand more about how we lose bone, how we keep bone, how we rebuild bone. And because it happens so fast to us, it makes us good subjects because it's really easy to measure in Hmm. terms of samples and things. Wow. So I thought we got Tang and Velcro, but we actually get medical advances. Oh, absolutely. And even um, heart function. Our hearts don't have to work as hard to pump blood from our feet up to our heads because they're not working against gravity. And in some ways, they get kind of lazy and the muscle gets weaker. And Mm -hmm. it actually begins to resemble actually an older heart. And Mm. so I've done all sorts of, you know, 48-hour blood pressure and cardiac monitoring and all those things that one could wear, I have worn them. And it all, you know, adds up to lessons that we're not able to learn down here. Mm -hmm. But we're also learning the more physical experiments, things like combustion. Because things burn a little bit differently up there Mm -hmm. without that sort of hot Mm. air balloon effect, Mm. where those lighter gases would rise, 
things burn more slowly and it allows us to study the process, something that we have to measure in like less than a second down here on Earth, we can actually measure over 30 or 40 seconds. So we're learning about pollution, we're learning about soot production, things like that. And we could go discipline by discipline Mm -hmm. and there would be some unique experiment that we can do up there that we just can't do down here. Mm -hmm. And I loved being up there to do them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Katie Coleman, who's an astronaut for NASA and has spent six months up in the space station. Katie, let's talk more about just being a human being up there. Just uh, what's it like eating? Is that, you know, there's a big part of travel. We travel to eat interesting stuff. How's the food up there? I tell people that nobody I know goes for the food. (laughs) (laughs) And I went up there with an Italian guy, Paolo Nespoli, who's just wonderful. And I'd never been to Italy before I went to the space station and lived up there with him. And there was just something genuinely sad about Paolo, <laughs> about the food, where he would just look at this, like, mashed package of lasagna and just go, what? Yeah. And I didn't understand it till I went to Italy, and then I thought, oh, poor Paolo. <laughs> see, see, an English astronaut would have no problem with that. Just they kidding, might like the food a little <laughs> So, but what, what's some uh, surprisingly tasty thing? I mean, I, I remember I went to a space thing here at uh, Boeing, and, and they had uh, some kind of dried ice cream that wasn't even cold or something. What's something fun that you eat? You know, we vote about the food, and the ice cream actually went away quite a while ago. Um, I would say the food is physically fun. So you can play with your food. Exactly. And I think that there's a a part of all of us that are small children that go up there. But if you end up, you lose your grip on something, or sometimes because it doesn't weigh anything, you forget you have it, and you let go, and you forget... And then suddenly that peanut butter sandwich that's open-faced is like just floating. And and then wherever it lands, that is where it's going to be. And then you're going to clean it up. Because sticky is still sticky without gravity. You know, you would not believe how far a little splurt of barbecue sauce can go. That opens up all sorts of problems. (laughs) So are some astronauts uh, sloppier eaters than others? Somebody's well, clean I'm, I'm a new tablecloth kind of person. My husband knows that after I've eaten dinner, we're going to need a new one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's this, a little worse, you know, I want to try this. That sounds so much fun. Now, when you're up there, what do you get homesick for when you're up there for a couple of months? Everybody's different. I think uh, your family just comes way before mm-hmm. anything else. You must have good Skype kind of connections and stuff with your loved ones. We work at it. You know, we mm-hmm. have a good Internet protocol phone. Mm-hmm. So I can talk to my family on the phone about 40 minutes every hour if I had enough time or they mm-hmm. had enough time to talk like that. My my son was 10 when I was up there. And, you know, when you're 10, you don't really want to talk to your mom like every day. Well, how are you? How are you? How's space? How's Earth? I mean, after a little <laughs> while, he's like, you know, Dad, you know, I've talked to her. Tell her I'm fine. <laughs> I love how space. I just find that so funny. <laughs> hey, Katie, when you're up there... And you're sleeping. Is your sleep the same up there? Do you dream differently? Do you get a straight seven hours or do you take medicine to help you sleep? Everybody's different. I'm a great sleeper. I can sleep anywhere, standing up, laying down, or floating around the space station. So that's a special gift. If you have a lumpy mattress, it doesn't really matter. That's right. Do you just harness yourself or do you just kind of all float around? We each have a cabin, which I think it's really important to have a place Uh that is yours that you can shut the door. They're very soundproof, which is nice. Mm -hmm. You can have a private conversation with your family, which I think is really, Mm -hmm. really nice. Most people have a sleeping bag where you... It's like a thin blanket that you kind of climb into and your arms can stick out. 
And most people will attach that to the wall so that they don't float around. But I'm kind of small, and every once in a while I would just leave it unattached and wake up in the morning, and you really wouldn't know which way was up and which way was down. So you could close your door in your cabin, and you could just decide in a, in a fun-loving kind of way, I'm not going to tie myself in, and you could just float around all night while you sleep. Absolutely. Do you do that? Sometimes. And, and we dream. I, I would say most people I've talked to share this with me in that we dream in zero-G as well. Now, what does that mean? Meaning that when I think about going somewhere in my dream, I fly there. Oh. I don't walk. Walking's really awkward. Shoes are really awkward. Yeah. And so we kind of sort of give ourselves a push. And, and wherever you push yourself, there you go. And, and to me, it's like living in the world of Peter Pan. You get spoiled. And I just loved you it. You get back down here with us <laughs> mortals, and you got to actually move your feet. <laughs> now, what surprised you from the view of space? Do you ever find yourself just gazing out the window? What do you enjoy looking at? We look out the window, I'd say, as much as we have time for, which is never enough. On my very first space journey on the Space Shuttle Columbia, I was up there with a guy named Al Sacco from Massachusetts, and I'm from there as well. And we just happened to see Massachusetts for the very first time together, looking out the window. And he looked down and goes, oh my gosh, it looks just like the map. (laughs) (laughs) It looks just like the map. Google Map, no, reality. We, we try to add to Google Map. On our mission alone, I think we took uh, 60,000 photos wow. in that, in that six months. So we take a lot of photos of the Earth. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's really different about the space station now, and I think it's a very human thing, is that instead of having just these small windows that are portals mm-hmm. where you look down and ah. let's say you're in the Pacific and Hawaii is going to go by, if you're not looking in exactly the right place out that portal, mm. Hawaii is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ocean. But now we have what we call the cupola. Mm. And folks can see this on the web. You just go to the gateway to astronaut photography. And on the top half, there's photos. On the bottom half, there's sort of stop action video. And you'll see our view out that cupola where there's a sort of series of diagonal windows all the way around and then one giant one above your head. And so you can look and you can see, in my case, you know, Cape Cod is Mm. coming and then you're there and then it's leaving. And for me, it just gives me more of a feeling of, of being present. So when I buy my first ticket, I'm going to make sure I get the class with the big windows. Yes. Sure. <laughs> now, looking down at Earth, it looks like the map. When you look in the other direction, are the stars brighter? The stars seem deeper to me and a little bit disorienting because they're more 3D, at least to me. And, more 3D, yeah. And it depends. You know, we're going around the Earth every 90 minutes. And so we're always looking in a different part of the night sky as well. So if you blink, it changes. Absolutely. So you have to kind of get those patterns memorized. And they they look a little bit different, you know, upside down. Like if you go to Australia and look up at the sky, it'll just Mm -hmm. look familiar, but at the same time different. (laughs) So you see Orion's necktie instead of Orion's belt. (laughs) I didn't check, but next time I will. Check that out. And do you stargaze differently when you're back down on Earth? I would say I stargaze more wistfully. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Katie Coleman, and Katie's one of our astronauts. She works for NASA. She works for us. She's out there helping us get comfortable with space. It's a multinational effort and making lots of scientific progress. Uh, At the same time, we've been learning about what it's like to be up there. Katie, are there tasks that you take for granted on Earth that are especially complicated when you get up into zero gravity? There's some really simple ones that are hard, and that is unpacking anything. 
moving anything. It's like thinking about open your suitcase. What if everything floated out? It's like hurting cats, weightless ones. But one thing I don't think we talked about yet, Rick, was the space station itself. We talked about a lot about the capsule and how small that is. It's like that smart car. But then the secret that we keep from everybody on the Earth is that the space station is enormous. I don't envision it as enormous. Take me on a walk through the space station. Well, it's, first it's hard to walk, so we have to fly, which is a little scary at Hold first. Hold my hand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, when, the, when, the, when new people first get up there, they're, they're sort of clumsy and they're grabbing. You can only walk with your hands, really. So you're sort of grabbing all the things that you would hold on to and gripping yourself around yeah. the space station. And then you learn to, to fly. But often we kind of jump off that cliff a little bit too soon. And the new guys come flying through the lab and they knock everything off the walls. <laughs> it's Velcroed. And the experienced people are catching stuff right and left and putting it back on the walls. And then the, the new guys land at your feet looking like, you know, like new puppies that are just so excited. They're like, oh, look at this. Isn't this cool? <laughs> and you probably, the old timers roll their eyes and go, yeah, we, we got over that six weeks ago. <laughs> you know, actually, that is where I, I never, I don't think any of us ever get over it because the flying is magical. Yeah. And so if we, if we start off, we could start off in the place where the shuttle would usually dock. And so you come in this hatch, if you came up in a shuttle, come in this hatch. And this is a series of train cars that are st- stuck together like with hatches. So they're big. It's like train cars without the seats or buses without the seats. So there's a lot of space. And in fact, you can get a little bit stuck in the middle because there's nothing to hold on to. Oh, so like a sailboat that's stuck in irons with no wind. Exactly. So if you have no momentum and nothing to hold on to, can you paddle or, or will you just sit there? Paddling doesn't really quite work, but you really always have some sort of little bit of momentum. And actually, something it takes a while to get good at is to let go of something without imparting, you know, some kind of force yeah. on it. So we come in the hatch as if we came off the space shuttle. And to your right is going to be a sort of train car that is the Japanese module. And to your left is going to be the European module. And straight in front of us is going to be our, our four cabins that are one is to the left, one's to the right, one's on the floor, one's on the ceiling. So it's a little ring of cabins. And then we're going to fly forward into the U.S. laboratory where we do a lot of the experiments, although we also do a lot of them in the Japanese and European modules as well. And then we're going to come into what we call node one. So node two is where we entered, and that's where things are attached. A node is a place where a bunch of modules are stuck together. Uh-huh. And now we're in node one, and on one side is the airlock, where if we're going to do a spacewalk, we'd put on our spacesuits. And so in node one, this is where we eat. So we've got the kitchen table which isn't horizontal. It's actually like at a diagonal on its way down. And this is my crewmate, Paolo Nespoli's brilliant uh, sort of discovery was that all of us used to fly from the lab to the Russian segment. And often we'd sort of like bonk our hip on the way by the kitchen table. It was just Mm -hmm. in the way. And Paolo said, you know, nothing on there is going to stay in one place anyway. Going to have to Velcro it or duct tape it or something or bungee cord it to the table. So let's just move the table down just a little bit. Now it's kind of like an easel. Mm. And it's a, still a place that we can all gather around and be together and feel like we're eating a meal together, but we're not going to hurt ourselves as we fly by. <laughs> but then if you take a right, you're going to go to the place where a lot of really important things happen. The first one is the treadmill. So this is one of the things that we exercise on. And so somebody would actually be coming horizontally out of the wall, running on the treadmill, and you can just sort of weave your way around them. 
Then you're going to be looking at the bathroom, a very necessary place. And I think that whenever any of us travel anywhere, you always want to have to be able to be comfortable Could about check those out the bathroom, things. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's actually pretty pretty fun stuff as well. And and not as exciting as people think it might be. And and that's good that it's not exciting. We like that to be boring. Right. But there is. If I won't I won't ask you to get into all the details. But there are effective ways that you can go to the bathroom and and not have terrible stuff floating all over. Absolutely. I mean, I tell the kids not to try this at home, but basically we have like a vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's okay? nice. Good. And you really don't want to try that at home because ours is very special. But, you know, and I'm always pretty graphic because, yeah. you know, I have kids. <laughs> Thank you for the tour of the space station. And you've shared with just me, nobody else, the secret that it's a lot bigger than people realize. It's giant. It's a, it's a really special place. I bet you look forward to going back up there. It was hard to leave. I would have stayed another six months in a minute. Oh, man. I mean, it's a magical place. It takes a little while to get good at doing things up there. Once you go back up, do you snap right back in it, or do you have a few days of adjustment? I think mentally we learn that we just make an adjustment. I think it still takes a little time, and actually many people are sick at first. We've all had our times Mm -hmm. of being sick or not being sick. What kind of sick? Um, Is that a nausea because of the weightlessness, or or what kind of sick would you be? Yeah, that kind of nauseous, just because... It really does a number on your middle ear. You know, when you kind of mm-hmm. give yourself a push and fly across the space station, mm-hmm. there's nothing that really tells your middle ear that you started. But then when you stop, it says, well, she stopped. Mm. But she never started. How did that happen? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been traveling through space with astronaut Katie Coleman. Katie, what's next for NASA? What are you working on? And, and, and what, what's your vision for our space program, just to wrap things up? In the immediate future for NASA... We're taking some of the things that we know how to do. We know how to send people and stuff to low Earth orbit. And we have a space station there that goes around our Earth every 90 minutes. And we know how to do that. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean we take it casually. But it's the time to sort of transfer that work to our commercial partners, to companies that can build spacecraft in a less expensive and more flexible way than our government organization And so that we're doing that transition, and I myself am working with some of those companies, helping to make sure that we all understand, you know, how things are going to be used once they get to to space and that people actually capture these things with our robotic arm up there. Mm. So that's the immediate future, but the beyond that future is happening right now as well. And that is that we are using the places that we can get to, that we can target, and those are asteroids and the moon and eventually Mars. And we're thinking, what do we need to go to those places? And what, what's the technology? How much do we need to be able to recycle air and water? What do people need to bring with them? How do we keep people healthy? Make sure when they get to Mars, they can walk around and they're not just spaghetti people. <laughs> so we're learning all those, all those small steps need to be taken. So we're targeting those further destinations and at the same time taking the steps to build a spacecraft that could launch from the U.S., that will bring us to the space station, but also to asteroids, to the moon, and eventually on to Mars. Wow. Katie Coleman, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's fun to be talking with fellow travelers. Fellow travelers, I like that. Happy travels, with or without gravity. <laughs> thank you. We're looking forward to having some of your travelers come up there, too. All right. What shall we do? What shall we do? With all this useless beauty. Whether or not you actually get a chance to voyage into outer space during your lifetime, there's still plenty of adventure waiting for you down here, back on Mother Earth. 
Up next, let's check in with listener travel reports and get inspired to explore some new facet of our fascinating planet up close. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can share your comments and travel reports in our feedback forum. That's in the radio department at ricksteves.com. Amir Talibetchilovich. I'm uh, coming from Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, where I work as a local guide and as a journalist. We have many proverbs, like the rest of the Balkans. And for this time, I will use uh, one um, journalist one. We will say like, Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne sloboda poslije govora. There is a guarantee for the freedom of speech, but uh, not the freedom after the speech. Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne i sloboda nakon govora. You can sail around the world or voyage into outer space, but there's nothing like planting your own two feet in a place you're seeing for the first time. Let's find out what kinds of adventures our fellow listeners have been up to at 877-333-7425. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Paul's calling in from Vancouver. Paul, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Tell us about your travels. What have you been doing to enjoy the world? Well, in September of 2011, uh, my wife and I got married, and we decided that before we uh, would start a family, we would try to get a year of travel in. And so we had a really busy year. We honeymooned in Greece and Turkey. Over the winter, we traveled to Argentina and Uruguay. Summer, we went hiking in the Yukon. And in August, we traveled to Switzerland, Paris, Slovakia, and Poland. Whoa. Now, is this four different trips? Four different trips. Yeah. Uh, and in Greece, we honeymooned on Kefalonia, which is one of the Ionian islands. Uh-huh. And uh, we spent a few days in Athens and a week in Istanbul. This is interesting because you talked about Athens and Istanbul, like going from one to the next. And geographically, they're like sister cities. But how would you compare the two cities? Uh, I felt that Istanbul was probably a little bit more lively than Athens. Um, I guess it's a bit of a cliche, but they describe it as, you know, where East meets West. And you certainly got that feeling while we were there. I mean, when we were in line to get into the Hagia Sophia, we, uh, we ended up striking up a conversation with a family from Iran. And, uh, that, was, that, was, that was sort of special for us. That was a new experience for us. That was your first trip. And then the second trip was? We went to uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. And we, we spent 10 days there and then five days traveling around Uruguay. Uruguay. What yeah. was your take on Uruguay? Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, we had a really hard time finding a guidebook on Uruguay. And when we finally did find one, they described it as the sort of the Canada of South America because it's sandwiched between these two huge countries of Brazil and Argentina. It was, it was very quiet there. We only spent a day or two in the capital city of Montevideo. And then we uh, went to a very small beach town just a couple thousand people called La Paloma, hmm. and just spent some time relaxing there on the beach after we had spent 10 days in the hustle and bustle of Buenos Aires. So it was all good except for being stung by jellyfish one day. Uh, it was a nice trip. I've, I've had people tell me Uruguay feels European. It does. I felt Buenos Aires felt very European. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge Italian population in Buenos Aires and a Spanish one. You don't see much of an indigenous population, nor one of African mm-hmm. descent. So I think Buenos Aires is often described as the Paris of South America. Right. And it felt very much like that. Its architecture is inspired largely by French architecture, although it does feel a little bit like a city sort of in decay, almost a sense of faded glory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe its height, I think, was in the 1930s. And so a lot of the buildings seemed a little run down, but 
certainly not precious. You know, they were lived in, they were being used. It was, there was a vibrancy there. We're talking with Paul from Vancouver, British Columbia, who got married and, as if taking his new wife on a shakedown cruise, traveled all over the world. Is she a good traveler? <laughs> she is. I would say she's probably a better traveler than me. My wife was born in Poland uh, and moved to Canada as a child, but because she has family and friends across Europe, she spent a lot of her teenage years traveling, where I didn't really start traveling until I got into my uh, early 30s. Okay, so you're halfway through your first year together, and you decide to really take her to the limit, and you go up to the Yukon. Yeah. Well, I actually had a work-related conference in Whitehorse, which is the capital there, so she joined me at the end of that conference, and she's a big nature lover. So we rented a car, and we made our way to Kluwani National Park, uh, which is one of the largest uh, refuge parks in the world. We did three days of hiking, and it was very beautiful, the, the mountain vistas there. Hmm. And we had a great time because we were there a little early in the hiking season. So it was just us and uh, some grizzly bears that uh, we did run into, actually, one day that luckily uh, uh-huh. ignored us. You finished it off going back to Europe, to Switzerland. Yeah, we went, went back to Europe. Like I said, my wife does have some family in Europe. So her brother was uh, studying in uh, Lausanne in Switzerland, and he was graduating with his Ph.D. Uh, from a university there. So we had a few days there, and uh, we took the Tejave to Paris, and I had never been to Paris mm. before. And you're still happily married? We're still happily married. In fact, we're expecting our first child. Oh, that's great. Our next challenge is going to be learning how to travel (laughs) with children, I think. Well, Paul, best wishes, and thanks for the report. Thank you, Rick. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, take care. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Your next vacation can turn into a trip of a lifetime with a little inspiration and information from our fellow travelers. We're checking in with your stories of memorable travels at 877-333-RICK or... Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Michael in Granbury, Texas, wrote us this email about how he makes travel a priority. My wife and I have traveled all over the U.S. and Europe. Friends are often jealous of us, and they tell us they just don't have the money to travel. I tell them it's a matter of choice. You give up eating out for lunch every day, and instead you put the cash toward your dream trip. You also need to decide what's important for you on your trip. Instead of fancy hotels, all we want is a simple room to sleep in and use as a base. Some of the best meals we encountered in Rome were panini, sandwiches from the mobile stands all around the city. Budget doesn't mean missing out. It's simply another part of the adventure. Boy, that's some sound travel planning advice from Michael in Granbury, Texas. Craig's on the line in Chicago. Craig, thanks for your call. Yeah, I was taking two hiking trips in Ireland. There's a series of trails in Ireland, something like a dozen of them, and I've walked two of them. One's called the Dingle Way. I walked that in 2010, about a 100-mile trail. It took me seven days. And then in 1999, I also walked a trail called the Wicklow Way, the Wicklow Mountains are south of Dublin. It's also about a 100-mile trail and also took about a week. Now, that's interesting for me because you got the far west and then you got the more developed south. When you think of the Wicklow Way, that's just the rolling hills and the beautiful lush surroundings just south of Dublin. Is that right? Correct, yeah. And then Dingle is way out on the west in the rugged peninsula. How was the experience different. If people are going to choose one hike or the other, if they want to go for a week-long hike in Ireland, I would think they're dramatically different. Yeah, what struck me the most was being on the seaside in Dingle. You can almost always see the ocean or Dingle Bay, 
and just walking along the water was fabulous. Um, I walked across valleys, across working farms, across a couple of beaches, and I walked up and down the eighth tallest mountain in Ireland. Uh-huh. It's called uh, Mount Brandon. It's about 2,400 feet. It took about two hours to get up it and then about an hour and a half to get down it. What was it, um, what was it like to be on the top of Mount Brandon? It was lovely. Amazing views of the ocean, goats, sheep wandering around. When you're traveling around Dingle, this is uh, the far west, where a lot of people speak Gaelic and traditional lifestyles are going on, and and it seems like it's like an open-air archaeological museum. You've got all of these mysterious prehistoric stone structures and so on. What did you encounter that way? Because all the tourists will drive and park and pay to see a few of the famous uh, stone igloos. Did you find any that were just all your own? Yeah, absolutely. And I love looking at antiquities. I never find them boring. I saw, for example, this Norman castle called Menard Castle. It dates to the 16th century. got this huge crack right down the middle of it. There was no one around it. I saw these huts that were built by Christians prior to St. Patrick's coming to Ireland. Wow. That's a site that's well known, but uh, there was no one there. I saw this famous site called Kilmockader Church. It had ogham stones in front of it with ancient Irish writing. No one was there. I saw another site called uh, St. Brendan's Hut. It's believed that St. Brendan, this traveler, got to the, uh, North America before Columbus, and also even before Leif Erikson, I saw his hut. Yeah, there, there's some reason to believe that an Irish wayfarer could have sailed from Ireland all the way to America. There's a little bit of that lore when you go around that part of Ireland. Describe those ogham stones. It's sort of a very crude, early, early way of writing that's just like hatch marks on the edge of a stone, right, on a corner. Yeah, they're standing stones. They're only about three to four feet tall. The writing looks like barcodes, essentially. It's, yeah. You know, it's a series of hashes, and I think they're believed to be memorials to people. They're not many, and I saw a couple of those. And you also mentioned Irish. I heard Irish spoken by people, and that was their normal day-to-day language. Did you find when you were walking that you had a little better sense of how the people were living, and you got little glimpses of, of local life that you wouldn't get while you're driving? Yeah, I remember once I was walking past this farm, and I saw a fellow who was keeping bees. Um, I saw this farmer who was moving his sheep from one field to another. I encountered another man who was running a dairy farm. My father grew up on a dairy farm in Missouri. He invited me into his farm. He showed me his equipment. He actually invited me to milk some of his sheep. Now, there's, that's farmhouse friendliness. Come on, help me milk the sheep. And then when you're hiking, I've always found that just when you need it, there's a pub on the horizon or in the next corner, and you have a, a warm place to go and have a drink and get a good meal. Yeah, I encountered a couple of those, very friendly. I could have talked to them all day. They loved that an American was visiting. That's something I encountered throughout the Dingle Peninsula. I stayed at B&Bs. Right. The people were incredibly friendly. I, there's this husband and wife who like to come to the U.S., 
ended up talking to the man for two and a half hours. He just loved talking. This is a hazard um, of traveling in the west of Ireland, is people have all the time in the world to talk. And if you like to talk and meet locals, I can't think of a better place to go. People have this wonderful lilt and, and just this art of conversation. Craig, thanks for your call. It's a pleasure talking to you, Rick. I'm a longtime fan of everything you do. Oh, thanks, Craig. Well, give us a ring next time you have a travel adventure. Happy travels. Thanks. Cheers. Take care. And Kay Louise is on the phone in Seattle. Yes. I'm very excited to be able to talk about it because we had such a marvelous experience. We were there for 45 days. So what and, was your experience? Uh, Where did you go? Well, we went to Pamplona and then walked to Campostela. And you walked with the pilgrims all the way to Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. How many days and how many miles was that? Well, this was 400 kilometers, and it was 40 days that we walked. So 240 miles, and you took 40 mm-hmm. days, and you went with the pilgrims. Tell us what it was like as far as the camaraderie, because there's people from oh. all over the world that come together, yes, as exactly. they have for centuries, on this uh, uh, fabled hike across northern Spain to mm-hmm. Santiago de Compostela. That was why it was so great staying in the albergues, because then you'd meet all these other international crowds that, you know, from all over every place you could imagine, and so many family groups and different combinations of people, although the most people were single, we found out. The single walkers outnumber the couples and the groups, even. You stay in these refuges, or these mountain huts, they're called uh, albergues? Yes. Describe that. Well, they're kind of like youth hostels. There's municipal ones, there's private ones, and there are parochial ones run by the monks or nuns. And we stayed in all of those, and they were, well, each one was different, of course. Each one was unique. But the ones we enjoyed the most, there were two we stayed at that woke you with music in the morning. That was fabulous. And the first one was Vivaldi, you know, playing the Four Seasons. And, oh, what a way to wake up. And then uh, we were having dinner in one with the hostel here. He was a great cook, too, and he made this lovely dinner. And then he announced at the dinner, Now, in the morning at 6.30, you will be woken with music. Yeah. No one is to get up before 6.30. And everyone cheered and clapped. Oh, that was wonderful, because we were a bit tired of people getting up in 5 o'clock in the morning and starting to rustle their plastic bags and get out of there. And so we loved it when we were told that Nobody could get up before <laughs> 6.30. It was really good. And then that morning they played Ave Maria, and then, oh, and Miss and Dorme from Turandot. Oh, that was fabulous. Wow. Anyways. There's such rustic places, and there's such a spree decor there as you got all the pilgrims gathering, and in the evening yes. people are soaking their feet and looking at their maps and writing in their yes. journals and all sorts That's of people right. seeking and searching and being meditative. Uh-huh. And then they're run by these wardens or these... Uh, hostel keepers that really have found their niche in life and they just love accommodating and feeding all of these pilgrims. Exactly. They really like people and they're just so kind and helpful. And Did you have to make reservations or did you just stumble into your accommodations every no, day? No, well, find we were place? told that you could make reservations, but we never did do that. Most villages or towns had more than one, of course. They'd have a selection. And oh, they're quite inexpensive, aren't they? Yes, 5 to 10 euros. That'd be 8 to $15 a night for your accommodations. And then communal kind of dinners where you'd have uh, probably not a big menu, but you eat whatever cooking and uh, just hearty yes. food. Sometimes you had to go and find your own food. Okay, well, after walking for 40 days with your buddy, you finally get to this square as pilgrims have hiked for since mm. the Middle Ages, historically all the way from Paris to this place. Mm. What was it like for you when you finally got onto that square? Oh, 
was just fabulous. It was just to be standing there where we'd seen pictures of before and we ran into other people that had just come in or had been there a day or so. And so we had lots of photos and rejoicing with everybody and congratulating everybody to say, you know, you made it and all, and with all our blisters and things. And, of course, going to the Pilgrim Masses, that's what was the big thing. Oh, we just loved it. We went to three of them, actually. You did. And uh, they were having a festival. So they had fabulous music on oh, with yeah. that going on. And then they would swing the incense burner like, you know, we all hear about. So but they, got they this... only do that when there's festivals on. Now, so just so our listeners know, it's like if you can think of a like a phone booth in London, one of those red phone booths, this incense burner is about that big. And they've it's got the huge. monks pulling on this rope. And this thing swings. It must swing... Uh, 50-yard arc, back and forth. Yes, up to the ceiling and back again, and it's got sparks coming out of it, and the incense is streaming out of it, and it's just really... It's uh, it's rocketing by everybody, and that's that's just breathtaking. On this Camino de Santiago, the way, I, I get the sense that it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter what your profession is or your education or what the letters in front of your names are. Everybody is a pilgrim. That's right. And we're all there for the same reason. That's the thing. And what's that reason? Well, we're all wanting to experience the um, spiritual aspect of it or the just the time for thought or meditation or thinking about what you're doing with your life. You know, some people were not really very talkative on the way. They would just be thinking or praying as they go and... Others would be very jovial and calling out to everybody and lots of energy. But we all seemed to be there heading for Compostela, and we had this goal. We weren't just wandering around and looking at things. So, Kay, was it 40 days well spent? Oh, definitely. just was a marvelous experience. I'm just glad I did it before I was too old. (laughs) Well, I think you're an inspiration for a lot of people. You're in your 70s, and you and your friend did it, and you'd recommend Mm -hmm. it to others. Yes, I certainly would. All right. Hey, thanks so much for sharing. Good. Thank you, Rich. Bye now. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can send us an original haiku about your own travels or find out when Rick's recording his next batch of radio interviews so that you can talk on the air with Rick and his guests. Find out how it all works in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.